if you're visiting with us or haven't been here in a while, we are about halfway through the book of Revelation. We've been in since uh, September, and uh, we've made it all the way to uh, chapter 10 and 11, and today we're going to backtrack for a minute. I'm going to explain that, and then next Sunday we'll backtrack again, and then we'll pick it back up. Uh, so just some, some parameters, some helpful framework uh, to get us started this morning. Uh, so if you open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, you're going to read that in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he speaks into existence creation, and he declares at the end of creation that it is very good. Chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis. Chapter 3, the very next chapter, we find Adam and Eve rebelling against God, choosing to break God's law, sinning against God at the fall. And what happens in that moment is that the relationship between Adam and Eve and God is severed. They're now hiding from God. And we also see them beginning to hide from each other. And so we see this severed relationship at the fall. But something even more catastrophic happens in that moment. At that moment that Adam and Eve choose to rebel against God, a shadow is cast forward across human history. It's the shadow of sin and death. And every person in this room is born under that lingering shadow. There is evidence all around us that the curse is present. Right On the headlines of almost every newspaper or internet article, you're going to read the evidence of the fall. Destruction, war, rumors of war, abuse, lawlessness. We're going to experience it in our lives too, aren't we? Every person in this room has participated in the fall, in our own rebellion, in our own rebellion against God as recipients of the curse of the fall. And if you keep reading in your Bible after Genesis 3, not only are you going to read about this evidence, I mean, the very next chapter, you've got Cain killing Abel. You're going to read about this depravity and sinfulness um, of the world that we live in. But you're also going to read about a promise. As early as Genesis 3, God begins to proclaim the promise of a rescue. He begins to proclaim, I am sending a rescuer to rescue you from the curse of sin and death. So all throughout the Old Testament, there are these beautiful proclamations and prophecies and, and foreshadowings of the rescuer who is to come. And then with the birth of Jesus, we find our rescuer, the Messiah, the promised one coming to earth to deliver us. But instead of bringing a political reign and establishing his kingdom on earth at that time, he instead chooses to be a suffering servant on our behalf to go to the cross, to bear our punishment and our shame, ultimately providing for us forgiveness and restoring that relationship that was broken. And so now here we are, the church. After Jesus ascends to heaven, he launches the church. This is the rest of your New Testament. We're talking about Revelation today. Now the church waits in eager expectation for his return the moment in human history where Jesus says to sin and to death and to Satan, your time has come to an end. And he puts all of his enemies underneath his footstool. This proclamation is all throughout the Old and New Testament of this day that is coming, but none more vivid than the book of Revelation, describing for us a day when our Lord Jesus Christ will return to earth as the king of all kings, no longer simply as a, as a suffering servant, but now as a reigning sovereign king over the universe, again, putting to death all of his enemies. And the church is waiting in eager expectation of that day when he makes all things new. 
when he recreates the heavens and the earth, when, when the new Jerusalem descends and the new holy of holies, and we live in the everlasting presence of the King of Kings. Now, the book of Revelation is a difficult book. Many of you who have attempted to read it this time or in, the, in times past have maybe struggled with putting together timelines and, and framing it and organizing it. And it is a difficult, difficult book to read. Let me just give you uh, one of the difficulties and in interpretations of Revelation. So, so at, we have the ascension of Christ around 30 AD. The book of Revelation is being written around mid-90s AD, the close of the first century. Okay, so John, one of the disciples of Jesus is writing down this vision he sees. The big question about Revelation is, when does it all begin to unfold? So, for example, if you're a past tense person, you see all this in the past, for you then, it began to unfold at the moment he's seeing it. So when he's seeing a seal broken, that seal is being broken. When you, he hears a trumpet sounding, he's hearing the trumpet sounding. And so then most of Revelation then, if you're a past tense person, has already happened, and we're just hanging in the balance, waiting on one last thing, the return of the king. If you're a futuristic person, you're still waiting for the first seal to be broken. You're still waiting for that day to begin, the unfolding of the end time events. And so you're sitting somewhere between the resurrection of Christ and waiting on the beginning of the end. And then there's that middle ground view that sees us right now as, as the church here on earth living somewhere in the middle. That the first seal has already been broken, but we're lingering somewhere around the fifth or sixth seal or the fifth and sixth trumpet. And we're just waiting for that final seal or that final trumpet to happen and for Christ to return. So when you search the internet and you read books on Revelation, you're going to find those are the three primary views on the book of Revelation. Now, here's the exciting thing. It doesn't matter what camp you're in. We all end at the same place. This is the thing we're most excited about. This is the thing that we're most expectant for is the return of our king where he brings to an end finally the shadow of the curse of death and places it under the feet and the lordship of Jesus Christ, and we shall reign with him forever. Now, what we're doing as we go through Revelation, we're trying to look at all the different views and, 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 and really trying to extract from the word of God the main thing. And we're going to do that this morning in Revelation 7. So let me give you some help. If you read through Revelation, you're going to find some sequences of events. You're going to find seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. You're going to read things like, after this I saw. And it's going to, it's going to feel very much like a narrative unfolding. There are three literary breaks, interludes, three pauses, if you will, commercial breaks to the main story that will confuse you if you're not careful. Revelation 7 that we're going to be looking at today is one of those. So if you noticed, as we went through the, uh, the breaking of the seals between the sixth and seventh seal, we, we skipped over chapter 7. Why? Because it's a, it's a literary break. It's a pause. Now, these literary breaks are really significant, though. Because in these small windows where, where the revelation seems to pause for a minute and the tension seems to shift, for a brief moment, God takes his attention to the saints, to the people of God, and says, here's what you can expect specifically. And in these literary breaks, we're going to do one today and another one next Sunday, you're going to be reassured that as a child of God, God has not forsaken you or forgotten you. But you're also going to see fully displayed God's sovereignty over evil in these beautiful interludes. And then after we finish next Sunday, we'll pick up the trail again in Revelation 14 and 15 and, and moving towards the end. So that being said, let's get into Revelation 7. 
We're going to be talking about the 144,000. I know a lot of you are psyched up about that and a lot of questions about who these people are. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to do our best to, to, to bring clarity to that. Um, but let's do this starting in verse 1. Revelation 7, starting in verse 1. John is writing. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea. We're going to stop right there. So let's get the picture in our mind. This imagery of four angels at four corners of the earth holding back the four winds. A a fifth angel ascends into this imagery here, and he's going to begin speaking to these other four angels and giving specific instructions. Let's work through this imagery. So first of all, four corners of the earth, that was just an ancient idiom for this culture, meaning all the earth. It's not necessarily an indication that they felt like or believed that the world was flat. Um, It's just, it it was this expression to say from every corner of the earth. Now, the four winds, though, is, is incredibly significant to prophecies. The four winds um, are, are mentioned both all, in all three of these books, Daniel, Jeremiah, and Zechariah, as part of the end times prophecy. I'll just give you a few examples. So uh, Daniel 7.2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So we're going all the way back to Old Testament, Daniel, having a vision of way into the future, talking about the four winds of God stirring the sea. Jeremiah 49, Zechariah 6, all mention these same four winds. I make mention, too, that we see the winds carrying out the will of God here on earth in some really significant ways. It was in Exodus 10 that the, the wind of God brought about judgment through the plagues in Egypt. And then after God's people are set free from bondage and slavery and they're wandering through the wilderness, it's at the Red Sea that God brings about the wind to separate the sea and to dry the ground that the nation of Israel might cross over. So we see God uses wind for judgment and he uses it for rescue. And so here in this imagery, we've got four winds about to carry out the will of God and we've got four angels at holding back these four winds. And a fifth angel begins to speak. This is in verse 2. He calls out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea. Verse 3. Saying to them, do not harm the earth or sea or trees. So they've been given authority to do that. And he's saying, don't harm the earth, the sea, the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Let's talk about this for a minute. Now, we, two weeks ago, we were in the, the, the seven seals, and there's, there's a close um, relationship here to what we're seeing here. So the, the major scroll of the unfolding of events that we're reading about in Revelation, were sealed up in a scroll, 
And the scroll was sealed with seven seals. So it's this imagery of, of, a, of an ancient parchment of, of edict and rule and order from the king that has been rolled up and then dripped with wax seven times. And each wax has been sealed and stamped with the king's signet ring, each seal bearing the king's authority and ultimately the carrying out of what he desires through this scroll. So we talked about the breaking of those seven seals. Jesus is the only one worthy to open those seals that this might begin to unfold, so he does so. Now here we have this imagery of an angel carrying the very signet ring of God. The signet ring was worn by the king, and and only those who bore his direct authority were given that signet ring that they might carry out his authority on his behalf, and here an angel in this imagery, the way I see it, is carrying around the signet ring of God, the same ring that stamped the seven seals on the scroll, and now he's got it here. And He's saying to the four angels who are holding back the four winds, he's saying, don't go yet. Don't go. Don't unleash the harm on the earth until I have sealed the saints of God. This is beautiful imagery. Ephesians 2 talks about the followers of Jesus being sealed. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 4. Let's look at a few examples. In Ephesians 1 and verse 13, uh, the apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. Um, These were Christians after the resurrection, right in here, dealing with a lot of struggle internally and externally. And he reminds them in chapter 1, he says, In him, Jesus, in him, You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So at that moment, you believed the gospel, the Holy Spirit of God sealed your life. Verse 13 into 14 goes on to say, who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? few chapters later in the same letter in Ephesians 4, Apostle Paul writes, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, this same Holy Spirit who has sealed you. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You feel the connection there? So for you and I, the moment you trust Christ, the Holy Spirit of God seals your life. For that moment we're reading about in Revelation 7, that moment of redemption, the angel of the Lord has the signet ring and he stamps your life. So what's the, what's the significance of a signet ring? What does it bring about in terms of uh, implication for our lives? So to bear the signet ring of the king, first and foremost, meant that you belonged to him. You belonged to him. You were his possession. Now, this isn't a popular notion in modern-day American culture, right? We, we grow up in a culture, if you grew up in the United States of America, that's steeped in self-governance and autonomy. Right? You be all that you want to be. You pick your dreams and you go after them. You can be anything you want to be. You can attain anything you want to attain if you work hard enough and set your mind to it. And we don't like the idea of being underneath the sovereign control of anybody. Now, what's ridiculous is um, the average person in this room is probably about five foot nine, five foot ten. You go outside at night and you look up at the universe and you begin to realize just how stinking small you actually are. And the Word of God says you aren't sovereign over your own life. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. You're either following the course of the powers of this world, the fallen world, or you're following the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no options. Now, here's the thing. Satan's a deceiver. And so he leads us to believe that we govern our own lives. 
He makes promises to him. We chase after him, don't we? We work hard at him. We set out, set out to attain these false promises. And when we get there, whatever it is, whether it's a promotion, a, an amount of money, a new house, whatever that thing is that he promised joy in, we get there and we find out what? It's empty. And then we look up and there he is a step further down, luring us with another deceptive promise. All the while, we feel like we're leading our own lives, right? We're making a name for ourselves. We're, we're building our own little kingdoms here on earth. And all the while, we're following the kingdom of Satan. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, you all. Every one of us were dead in our trespasses when we followed the course of this world, the prince, the prince of this world who's right now ruling, leading the charge of the fall, leading out in death and destruction. We all followed him. Romans 6, Paul reminds us, listen, you're either a slave to sin or a slave of God. I was talking with a, with a believer this past week and it caught him off guard. Wait a second. I belong to somebody? Yes. You were bought with a price. If you're in Christ, you were bought with a price. You were not your own. The price paid was on the cross. Jesus paid a price to ransom you, and you are not your own. You are his possession. It is a good thing to belong to the king of kings. It's a good thing. And so to be sealed by God is to, is to say, I'm his Another thing that the signet seal brought about was protection. If you bore the signet seal, you ultimately bore the king's protection with all of his authority and power, right? With whatever he was capable of, he would protect you. As long as he sat in, on the throne in control and nobody overthrew him, you had his protection. Now we're reading in Revelation about this protection. And we see that it's not simply physical protection. Many of the saints of God will endure affliction. Many of you here today are Christians, Holy Spirit-filled Christians, and yet you've walked through or are walking through suffering. So this protection doesn't mean that life is always going to go well, and that you're going to be wealthy, and that you're going to have the American dream, right? That you're always going to be healthy and cancer-free. God's people still endure physical suffering. This protection is an eternal protection. You've been sealed in a place that Satan can't touch. You've been secured and guaranteed at a place at the depths of who you are, your soul, in such a way that no circumstance can change that identity. You've been sealed to say, you are my possession. You've been sealed to say, you have my protection. You've been sealed as well to enjoy the benefits of the king. Now, depending on the heart of the king, if the king was a generous king and you bore the seal of the king, you enjoyed the spoils of what he accomplished and conquered. If the kingdom prospered, you prospered. Now, if it was a selfish king and a greedy king, the king and the kingdom prospered, but you didn't. You stayed in poverty. And we serve a generous king who says to us as his followers, my joy is yours. My grace and mercy are yours. My love is yours. Everything that is mine is yours. Jesus is a victorious king. His victory is ours. I think about it. we just sang earlier every victory, right? In a song? Man, I'm in on that. Every victory. You mean the troubles I'm having in a relationship with my wife? Yes, Jesus, every victory over that. Thank you. Struggles I'm having and my failures as a father? Whew, praise God. He is victorious over those failures, right? Victory over every calamity, every amount of suffering? Absolutely. But what was the line we sang before that? 
all authority, every victory. In order for him to have every victory, he must have all authority. This signet seal is the, is the seal of the king of kings. And he says, you want my victory, it's yours, but my authority comes with it. When I stamp your life, you belong to me. I buy you with a price. And it was an expensive payment my son suffered to ransom you. You're bought with a price, you're not your own. But I will seal you and protect you eternally. And you will enjoy things that this world can't take from you. Jesus experienced joy when he endured the cross. As a Christ follower, you can experience joy regardless of the circumstances around your life. Why? Because his joy is yours. It's yours. Now, as we're going to see going forward with this in the next section, um, we tend to wander in and out of this, an awareness of this, don't we? There are moments where we feel, I belong to him. I'm excited about belonging. Give me a t-shirt, right? I want a bumper sticker. I want everybody to know. And then we, we wander in and out of that awareness. Okay? What we're looking at is a moment in time where we no longer wander in and out of that. We are permanently, eternally sealed There'll be no more living for Jesus today and denying him tomorrow. Remembering Jesus today and forgetting him tomorrow. This is the moment in time where it all comes together. Now, if you're taking notes, let's fill in the blanks and then we'll look at the 144,000. So the royal seal of God then, it marks those who belong to the king of all kings. The royal seal of God, those that are being stamped here, it marks those who belong to the king of kings. The royal seal of God marks those who are protected by the king of kings. And it marks those who share in the joy of the king of kings. Possession, protection, and the benefit of the joy. Now, let's talk about the 144,000, shall we? There are a lot of different perspectives on the 144,000. Let's talk about those that are just within Christianity, okay? Uh, some outside of Christianity we just don't have time to talk about today. Here's the primary perspectives on the 144,000. One is that they represent um, followers of God from the Old Testament, Israel. And that's a plausible case because they're organized, as we'll see, um, by the tribes of Israel. Another perspective is that they represent the church as a whole. We'll talk about how that's a plausible case as well. There's another perspective that said they actually represent, 144,000 actually represent like church, significant church leaders, maybe martyrs, significant key people in the church as a whole, which I would say is probably less plausible, but there's, there's that option as well. All right, so we read forward into verse 4. It says, so these three angels in verse 3 are, are told to hold off, don't harm anything until I have stamped the servants of God, verse 4, and then I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Then you get the 144,000 broken down, 12,000 at a time by 12 tribes. So let's talk about numbers in the Bible. There's three primary uses of numbers. Um, one is an approximate use. So when you read in Acts 2, 41, after Peter preaches at Pentecost, and like the crowd is just moved to follow Jesus, and they repent, and they want to become Christians... Verse 41 of Acts 2 says that about 3,000 uh, joined the number of the church that day. Now, we know that that's an approximate number, right? It's not a literal, there were exactly 3,000, but most likely that was just the men in the room or the men that were there present, that this reflected 3,000 family units. It's an approximate use of numbers. Same thing in Acts 4, 
uh, where 5,000 joined the church. So you see these roundabout approximate numbers. You also have a literal use of numbers. Two, Two men were walking. There were two men walking, right? So, but then you have what's difficult are the symbolic uh, uses of numbers, which Revelation contains a lot of symbolic use of numbers. We've talked about it some so far, right? Seven, reflecting the holiness of God, right? So we see seven in Revelation. It's a reflection of God and something that's transcending from his holiness, his authority, whether it's seven, uh, seven candles, seven angels, seven churches, seven represents the holiness of God. So the number 12, let's talk about that. That's where this number comes from. So the number 12 in the Bible represents completeness. Think about the tribes of Israel. There were 12 tribes of Israel that reflected the whole, right? There weren't 13, 12. There were 12 disciples, which reflected the whole of Jesus' disciples. Matter of fact, when Judas bails and hangs himself, Acts 1, they replace him with Matthias to bring the number back to 12, right? Now, we saw in chapter 4 and into 5 that there were 24 elders, 12 and 12. A couple other examples. We see, uh, 12, uh, we see 12 crops of fruit in Revelation. We see 1,200 stadia. We see 144 cubits. And so you see the use of 12 reflecting completeness, meaning there's nothing else left out. Okay? So here we have a number, which is 12 times 12, which is significant, meaning complete completeness then multiplied by another number that reflects completeness, 1,000, 144,000. So the symbolism of the 144,000, it represents wholeness, completeness. Now, the big debate then is, are we talking about the whole of the nation of Israel who are followers of God? Are we talking about the whole of the church? Should we take this somewhat literally or not? And I would say this, regardless of which way you land, I don't believe it's literal. The number's not big enough. It's like when Jesus says to Peter about forgiveness, 70 times 7. What he's saying to Peter is there is no end to the amount of forgiveness God gives you. Therefore, no end to the amount of forgiveness God expects you to give. That's what I believe this number reflects, like 70 times 7. Now, here's the cool thing. We're going to see in just a moment. It doesn't matter whether you see this reflecting just the nation of Israel who follow God or the Christian church. We all come together in just a minute and we sing the same song. Right? So I'm in on that. And I could say you could land on either perspective. We, we all get to the same place, which is super exciting. So there you go. There's the 144,000. Now, there, the 144 is organized, again, by the 12 tribes, 12,000. Here's what happens right after verse 8. So you, you're reading Revelation 7. It's broken in half. Verse 1 through 8 is the front half. Now, catch this because it's going to be tricky if you don't catch it. It begins with the words... After this, I saw. Then verse 9 begins with what? After this, I saw. There's a significant transition from verse 8 to verse 9. And let me tell you what it seems to be. The first eight verses of Revelation 7 is God telling the saints that they're going to be sealed and protected from harm when the four angels unleash the four winds. Then verse 9 is after all the destruction and tribulation and suffering, we get this beautiful snapshot into eternity. After all that has taken place, the saints are now looking back on the protection of God that they were sealed and they're worshiping God for it. So the first eight verses is before suffering, before tribulation. From 9 on is after tribulation looking back. All right. And so in between, we get these unfolding. So if you just took verse 8, 9 and split them apart, this is where you get 
what seems to be seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls and all this unleashing of destruction from the four corners of the earth, the four angels, the four winds. So let's pick this up in verse 9 now and read the second half of 7 together. Are you tracking? Are you excited? Not yet? Hey, fasten your seatbelts because it's about to go into full speed here. All right. Now, and and so the the very first of, of... Nine is going to explain to you why I would say it's not super critical that you land on the 144,000. Because look at verse 9 with me. After this, that's a transition. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. That no one could number. Who are they? From every nation from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So that's why I would say it's not super significant that you figure out the 144,000. They in some way reflect the people of God. Either either simply the Israelites from the Old Testament, it's just symbolic of of all these who followed God in faith, or it's reflective of the church as as a whole, doesn't matter why, because this is the point, right, that we're headed towards. When the crowd that gathers is so big that John doesn't even put a number on it, right? It's so, it's so big, I'm not even going to guess. Here's how I'll describe it. It's, it was such a big crowd that nobody could put a figure on it. Nobody could count. But I can tell you this, there were people there from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Now, one of the divisions of thinking you find within Christianity is the significance that Israel plays in the whole story. Okay? There are some who are really set on the fact that the nation of Israel is a significant part in not just the Old Testament, but all eternity. That In eternity, in the eternal presence of God, Israel will still have its national identity as the people, chosen people of God. Then there are those who would say, I I don't think so. I think that everything's culminating, that that through Israel, God brings salvation, and the nations join Israel in one song. Now, I'm just going to share with you um, some biblical perspective on that topic, okay? So I think one of the misunderstandings starts with the misunderstanding of the beginning of the nation of Israel. You know where Israel begins? Genesis chapter 12. It begins by God speaking to a man named Abraham who has a wife who's barren and can't have kids, Sarah. The first three verses of chapter 12, God speaks a prophetic promise. And he says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And through your descendants, I am essentially going to create a nation. That's a pretty big promise and a pretty big blessing, right? And so from Abraham, we have, through his descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we have the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, right? This is the primary story of your, your Old Testament from Genesis 12 going forward. You're tracking, you're following the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. So a significant piece of the story, right? But look at the end of the promise in verse 3 of chapter 12. This is what I would say is the crescendo of it all. Through your descendants, I'm going to bless all nations, all ethnicities, or your translation may say all families. It's the same word. Families, ethnicities, nationalities. So the beginning of the nation of Israel began with a promise where God said, through you, I'm going to bless all nations, all tribes, all tongues. 
And now we're seeing that come together, aren't we, in Revelation 7, 9. So much so that as the nation of Israel moves forward in human history, they're crying out, God, we need a rescuer. It comes out in a lot of different ways. After wandering through the wilderness and they make it to the land of promise, they cry out for a king. Why? Because God's not good enough anymore. They cry out for a king. So God sends them who? Saul. How does that work out for you? You like your earthly king? Oh, we need a better king. They cry out again. God sends David. Is David a perfect man? No, but he's a reflection of the, the rescuer who is to come. And so the nation of Israel cries out over and over again, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget us? How long before you make good on your promises? How long until you rescue us? Then Jesus comes as the rescuer. And, and think about this. What is the climax of his earthly ministry? Death on the cross, Friday, resurrection on Sunday. And before he ascends to his right place at the right hand of God, he says to his disciples, here's your job now. Go make disciples of who? The nations. And Paul says in Galatians 3, Jesus is proclaiming the same thing God proclaimed in Genesis 12, 3. The point of it all, right? The point of it all is what? That God desires to bless the nations and build a kingdom for himself under the reigning lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ, one kingdom, lots of nationalities and tribes and tongues and languages, but one people. Paul talks about this in Galatians 3. The whole chapter really is about this, and I encourage you to read it if you're, if you're still interested or curious. I'll read a few highlights. So in Galatians 3, 7, Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Well, that, was, that was a strange thing for these people to hear. Wait a second. You mean it's not circumcision or my genetics or who my mom or dad were? It's faith? He goes on to say in Galatians 3, in verse 26, he says, For in Christ Jesus... You all are sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to what? The promise. We've been grafted in to the vine. One family, lots of tribes and languages and tongues and ethnicities and colors of skin. One family, the people of God. Now, here's the thing. Whether you are a person who lands on Israel maintaining its significance or not, it doesn't matter because we all join together in the same song in the end as the people of God. Even in the Old Testament, there's beautiful prophecy of this. Um, I love Isaiah 2.2. So in, in, in Isaiah chapter 2, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, talking about the end times. Now think about that. That's happening like 600 plus years before Jesus even comes. Isaiah is looking down the timeline of human history and describing that day that we're about to read about. And here's what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 2.2. He says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains. You see God's kingdom and throne room just raising up above any other kingdom here on earth. And then look at what he says. And not only that, all the nations shall flow to it. 
That's kind of strange. Rivers don't flow towards mountains. They flow away from mountains. But as Isaiah looks down through prophetic ability of the Holy Spirit and sees that day, he describes it as the mountain of the kingdom of God rising up above any other kingdom, and then the rivers of nationalities and ethnicities flow to it. That's all the way back in the Old Testament. God's speaking through the nation of Israel about his desire for that day. In, uh, in Exodus 19... Um, this is at the Ten Commandments. God speaks to Moses about the people of Israel, and he says something really profound about them that Peter, a disciple, is going to pick up on. Here's what he says. Exodus 19, verse 4, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He's describing the rescue from slavery. He bore them up on eagles' wings. I don't need Tolkien, Hobbit fans. That imagery where the dwarfs and, and Bilbo are rescued with the eagles. I know some of you are like, what? That's the imagery I have in my mind here. God is saving the day. He's saying, what I did for you, bringing you out of slavery, crossing the desert, providing manna and water and parting the Red Sea and all that I did. Here's how I would sum that up. It was like I bore you on eagles' wings and I rescued you. Yeah. It's going to come up again next week too, so... You may want to go home and watch the first Hobbit. All right, so I bore you up on eagle's wings, and I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Does that sound familiar? Among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. I want you to see what Peter does. So in the New Testament... Peter, right, one of Jesus' boys, right, very, at times, unfaithful follower of Jesus, at other times, a very faithful follower of Jesus. His life looks a lot like mine some days. But here's what he says about that same thing we just read. In 1 Peter chapter 2, this is what he writes, verse 9, you, church, Christians, Jews and Greeks, you, you are a chosen race. I thought Israel was the chosen race. He's saying to the people of God, the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, I don't think it matters whether or not you see that Israel maintains its significance and identity into eternity or not. In the end, we're all his people. We're all his holy nation, a nation of, of priests, saints, and we will sing with one voice. So let's get to it. The rest of verse 9. We are clothed in white robes, which is, again, significant. It reveals what? That our ability to make it into heaven is not based on our own merits. This is God robing us with holiness so we get in. So if you're trying to earn your way into God's favor, um, it's, it's about as ridiculous as me trying to change my haircut, Okay. Just doesn't, you're not going to get any closer to God by working hard morally. Jesus has done it for you. And he says, here, put on my righteousness. So the saints of God are given white robes to wear, signifying what? I got in on his merits, what he did for me. That's how I got in. Going forward, I love this, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, 
when you heard palm branches, that may have rung a bell. You remember the Sunday before Jesus went to the cross? What happened? The people in Jerusalem catch wind that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And he does so riding on a donkey, symbolizing what? The significance of his royalty, that he's returning to Jerusalem as a victorious king. The people hear this, and they go out and they worship him. But with palm branches, and some of them lay down their cloaks. I mean, what dramatic imagery. I read that, and I think, man, I wish I could have been a part of that. Did you know that was just a snapshot of what's going to happen in eternity, right? Look at what happens. We get to be a part of that clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. Now, John chapter 12 captures that moment where Jesus rides in on the donkey on Sunday. I want to just read a couple of verses to you from chapter 12, verse 12. Starting in 12, he says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, which is the feast of the Passover, they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches, or they took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Hosanna. What were they crying out? God, save us. That was the cry of God's people from the fall. God, save us. Who will rescue us from this body of death? Who will rescue us from this curse? God, save us. And what's interesting is that on Sunday before the cross, what are they saying? God, save us. But that's not what we read in Revelation 7, is it? Look at Revelation 7, what they're saying. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What are they saying? Salvation is already here. At the first coming of Christ, the people are saying, God, save us, rescue us, we need, we need your help. And at this moment in eternity, we will sing with the nation of Israel, all the saints, every tribe, language, tongue, nationality, ethnicity, color of skin, length of hair, body size, all of us together saying what? It's here. We're no longer asking for it. We've got it. Salvation belongs to our God. The king of kings is sitting rightfully on his throne of the universe. His enemies have been made his footstool. Salvation belongs to our God. Now, I want to skip down to verse 15. We're just going to get this beautiful snapshot into what we will experience in eternity. All right. Let's just be honest. I think we have far too cheap a view of eternity. When I hear questions like, do you think we'll play golf in heaven? Will I get to go fishing? What kind of fishing boat am I going to have in heaven? Will I get to crochet in heaven? Will I? All these silly questions about eternity. Like, here's what I hope. I hope that you and I, at the moment we step into this reality, will drop the cheap trinkets of this earth and latch on to something that's better. Okay? Here's the imagery of what we will experience eternally. From God's word. I'm not making it up. Verse 15. Therefore they... Who are they? The saints, robed, sealed, they. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor the scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. 
and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's a snapshot of eternity. That moment, I'm not going to care if I have a fishing pole or not. Because I'll have something better. If you're taking notes, I want to point out just a couple things about eternity here. First of all, in that age, in the age to come, the church will experience the eternal presence of God. Let me explain. Right now here on earth, if you're a Christian, you're experiencing the eternal presence of God. The difference is your awareness of it. Right now, as a Christ follower, you are wondering in and out of your awareness of the presence of God. Maybe right now in this moment, you're vividly aware of the presence of God. But then a few hours from now, you'll be consumed thinking about football, and you'll forget the presence of God. You'll go to sleep later tonight, and you'll forget about the presence of God. What's being described here is a day where the saints will linger without disruption in the presence of God both day and night. Man, I'm looking forward to that. Another thing that we see here is eternal security. So not only do we serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Again, right now here on earth, this is not guaranteeing that you won't have a hard day or that you might not walk through a significant experience or season of suffering or hardship. I don't know everybody in the room, but I know a lot of people in this room, and I know a lot of your stories. I know about seasons of hardship that you've come through and some of you just began in the last week got a pink slip or a diagnosis or a phone call or something right this is not guaranteeing that you won't walk through the valley of the shadow of death we're all living right now in a fallen world this is the guarantee that he alone will shepherd you through that valley of the shadow of death and that his eternal seal is on your soul and nobody and nothing can touch it and so the The expression, this imagery here is eternal presence and protection of the king of kings will be sheltered. Eternal security of God. The next thing I want to point out here is the eternal satisfaction of God. Eternal satisfaction of God. It's expressed this way. No more hunger, neither thirst to springs of living water. Again, you and I, I think we wander in and out of our awareness of our satisfaction in God. There have been hopefully moments in your life where you were completely satisfied, right? There's nothing else on earth like the presence of God right now in my life, only what? To wander away from that awareness and to seek satisfaction in something else for a moment, right? This is very indicative of our lives. We're prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. This is the moment when we are fully satisfied in Christ and Christ alone. The fourth thing is this, eternal joy. In the eternal presence of God, he will wipe away every tear and the church will experience the eternal joy of God. No more burden, no more sorrow. I love the, uh, the Old Testament imagery of God bringing beauty from ashes. This, this imagery of the ground just being scorched with sin and suffering, but give it time, what happens? brand new life springs forth and God brings beauty up from the ashes of our lives. This is that moment 
where everything that you've experienced here on earth as a result of the fall is being redeemed and God is bringing beauty out of the ashes. Eternal joy. Now I want to finish with this verse from John 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So our worship team comes back forward. I want you to know that Jesus wants to know you and he wants you to know him with the same level of intimacy that he knows the Father. That's what he just said there. I want you to know me the same way I know the Father. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that our greatest hope for you is that today would be the day of salvation, the day of rescue for you, that you would trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins, for eternal protection, for for purpose and meaning in life, and for a joy that can't be touched by anything that happens to you in this life. Amen. Amen. And that invitation is on the table right now for every person in the room. Um, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. And worship team, you guys want to come back up. Um, I'm just going to let you know we, um, we have prayer partners available in these next two songs. Um, they'll be at the back of the room. They've got lanyards on, says prayer partner. Um, they would enjoy nothing more than, than the opportunity just to pray with you, for you to walk up to one of them and say, hey, would you pray for me? Maybe there's something going on that you're wrestling with and you want somebody to pray with you. They'll be around at the end of our services as well. Maybe you just, as we sing, you just want to stay seated. And that's perfectly cool, okay? Nobody's going to look at you like you're not part of the crew. Man, just deal with the Lord. If you want to stay seated, if you want to come down the front and kneel and pray, you want to grab a prayer partner, you want to stand and sing, let's do that. Let's, let's pray together, and then we'll respond. I'm going to invite you to stand, and just with your, your head bowed and your eyes closed, let's, let's prepare our hearts to respond. Father, we thank you that you are both the sovereign Lord of this universe and you are the loving Father who sent your Son to rescue us. And God, right now we pray for any person in this room who doesn't know your salvation, that today would be the day.